The last time I shared with you, we were in John's Gospel, chapter 3, and we saw Yeshua's conversation with the observant Jew, Nicodemus. And we want to turn back to that chapter again, chapter 3 of the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 is a famous chapter that many know because of the verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that is a, a statement that Yeshua has made that I don't want to ever become so familiar with it that I lose the depth of that statement. The reality of God's enormous love for us and the wonderful gift that He has given us in Yeshua, His only begotten, not made Son, His eternal Son, that if we simply trust, it is not based on our ability to earn or deserve, but it is rather trusting in the reliability of the one who makes the promise that if we trust, if we believe in him, that we will not ever perish, but have life that is everlasting in length and in quality. This is John's heart. This runs through all of Scripture. Week by week, we share together in the Shema. And we remember that God's greatest command is that we would love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we know what love is because He has loved us first. The Scriptures are all about love, love that is strong and good and holy and pure, love that has teeth to it, not just a gushy sentimentalism, but love that is strong and powerful, that changes our lives and is rooted in righteousness and holiness. And so John has written this gospel for us at the prompting of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, And the Holy Spirit has brought to mind the encounters that that John had with Yeshua and the experiences that they had together and has brought this gospel together and his whole goal is that you and I would trust Yeshua and find life in him. Today we come to verse 22 of chapter 3. And it says that after these things, Yeshua and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he remained with them and baptized or immersed. So once again, we come back to Yeshua and an encounter with him and the ministry that is beginning to grow. And let's consider this together and bow together in prayer. We know, Father, that whenever we read your word together, whenever we meditate on it and consider it, that we are in an encounter with you because this word is your word, living and active, 
powerful, sharper than a two-edged sword, wonderfully dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, revealing the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts and revealing the glory and the wonder of who you are to bring us into a glorious relationship with you. Thank you, Father, that today by your spirit you will speak and help us to hear and to respond and to grow in love in Yeshua's name. Amen. Jerusalem is in Judea. And so when it says that Yeshua and his disciples came into the land of Judea, I think what it means is that they were going out into the countryside, away from the major city. And Yeshua was then getting into his ministry and it including immersion. Now John, in verse 23, also was immersing at Ainon near Salim, because there was much water there, and they came and were immersed. And so we see that Yeshua and John's ministries were going on at the same time. They were going on in tandem, if you will. And there is an insight in verse 24 that John had not yet been thrown into prison. So what we are reading is something that is not included in the other three Gospels. In the other three Gospels, we see the growing ministry of Yeshua, but it is after John has already been imprisoned. Here, we see that there was overlap between John's ministry and Yeshua's ministry. And an unnamed person or group of people In verse 25, it says there arose a dispute between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. It could have been just one Jewish person or a number of Jewish people, a group of Jewish people that came to to Jewish John and were having a discussion about purification. We do not know what that discussion involved. We could speculate, but we don't know. There's no information given about this discussion. However, it became a springboard into something else. In verse 26, we see, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is immersing, and all are coming to him. Now the the implication is that these followers of John were concerned for John and for their group. They had become loyal. John was their rabbi. They had come to follow him. They had come to see that he was indeed from God and that something wonderful was happening here. And as is often the possibility we get attached to the human instruments that God uses to display his glory and to share himself and his truth. And to some extent, that's a reasonable thing, to appreciate those whom God gives, to appreciate the fact that each of us in whom Yeshua lives are a display of Yeshua. And we reveal him in wonderful ways, 
And we appreciate seeing that in one another and hearing each other encourage one another through the scriptures, through the insights and the things that God is saying to us. But what was happening here seems to be that that those who were following John were concerned that this was taking away from John's ministry. That maybe this would be hurtful or even detrimental to John. And perhaps there was a bit of jealousy going on here, perhaps. And listen to John's answer in verse 27 as he begins to respond. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. The very first thing John says is that ultimate right to determine what's going on in our world, to determine our assignments as human beings is in God's hands. God has the right to guide our lives. And God will guide our lives wonderfully. God has the right to give us His assignment to work His purpose in and through us. God has the right to be in charge because He is God. He is a good God. And John says, nothing, I can do nothing essentially except what God has given me the assignment to do. And in verse 28, he reminds us of what he has already said in chapter 1 as we saw that John was faithful to say that I am not the Messiah. Verse 28, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. So John makes it very clear, I am not Messiah. I have been sent to prepare the way for Messiah. I have been sent to prepare a people for him who will go to him. And then he talks about the image of a bride and a bridegroom. But for a minute, I want to just pause and think about the fact that that God gives us assignments in his family. And those assignments are specialized to each of us. Let's look together at Matthew chapter 11 and see a bit more of of John's assignment and what Yeshua said about him. Matthew chapter 11. In this chapter, we see that John is in prison. And in prison, he hears about Yeshua and the ministry that is unfolding. And the ministry that is unfolding is perhaps a little different than he has had thought. And so he sends some people from some of his disciples to say in verse 3 of chapter 11, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Yeshua answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. It's easy for us to get in a time of trial and begin to question 
what we have heard in the light. But I think God says to us, don't doubt in the dark what you've heard in the light. And then he gives him encouragement, a message to make clear that he is doing the things that were predicted of the Messiah. And then he comes to talk about John. Now you see, in our day, it seems like if a person is successful, there are certain measures of that success. Perhaps it's large numbers of of people involved in whatever they're doing. Perhaps it's based on large numbers of statistical results, positive results, maybe large financial impact or some other kind of criteria. But with John, as we saw in John chapter 3, people were beginning to go from him to Yeshua. So his followers were beginning to decline. And at this point, he was imprisoned. So his ministry is essentially concluded. What is the evaluation of heaven on John's ministry? In verse 7 of Matthew 11, it says, As they departed, Yeshua began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. For this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What an incredible statement Yeshua makes. John has been given an assignment. John's assignment is to prepare the way for Messiah. John is the messenger sent before the face of God, the face of Yeshua, to prepare his way, to prepare a people for him. In Yeshua's evaluation, there has never been a greater one than John. So even though John's ministry was beginning to decline in John chapter 3, as we read it recorded, we see that that he was content with the assignment that God had given him. He didn't want to be the Messiah. He wasn't the Messiah. And he knew that his whole ministry in life was to point to the Messiah. And so for people to begin to follow the Messiah was the fulfillment of his ministry, even if it meant the decline of his own. And that brings us back to what I want us to consider the assignments that God gives you and I. You see, every person in Messiah's family, every person has come to trust Yeshua, has been given gifts and assignments from Him. We have the glorious privilege of being in life working with Him in very specific assignments and responsibilities. Yeshua once said that 
Even if your only assignment is to give a cup of cold water in his name, that you will, in doing that, by no means lose your reward. In this first letter to the Corinthians, Shaul says, Let a man so consider us as servants of Messiah and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. You and I are stewards of the mysteries of God. You and I have a unique body. We have a unique personality. We have a unique family background. We have a unique ethnic heritage. You and I have unique intellectual capacities, unique social levels and standings. No one of us is alike. Gloriously so. God has made us precious and individual and yet blends us together in a family, in Him. And He gives us a wonderful assignment. In the letter to the Romans, in chapter 12, Shaul writes about the grace of God towards us. He writes in verse one of chapter 12. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we being many are one body in Messiah and individually members of one another, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. As we understand the glorious mercy of God, how he has come and rescued us in Yeshua, how he has given us life, how he has forgiven us, cleansed us of our sin, given us his righteousness, and then drawn us into a life with him. The natural response to seeing the wonderful mercies of God is for us to give our bodies to him, ourselves to him, as an alive sacrifice, a sacrifice of worship, a reasonable sacrifice, which involves our serving him. And it is not just our bodies, our our whole being we give to him. And one of the most important dimensions of our being is our minds, that our thoughts are transformed Our minds are being renewed. We're being transformed as we meditate on the things of God, on the ways of God, on God himself. And that means that we will not be squeezed into the world's mold, conformed to the way the world thinks. But as our minds are being renewed through the spirit and through the scriptures, that we come to discern the will of God and we come to see that the will of God is good. And it is acceptable to us and to God. And there's no better 
plan for us in all the earth and God's will. It is perfect. And then we know that God has given to us grace. God has given to us grace and He's placed us in His family. He's placed, it in, placed us in His body and He has given us a responsibility, a gift, an assignment, some means and ways to serve Him. And this is all rooted in His grace to us. And so, He says, Therefore I say to you through the grace given me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. And basically, to think soberly means that you and I are not insane. Arrogance is insanity. Humility is sanity. If God has given us a gift, it is arrogance to say he hasn't. If I take all the praise for the gifts I have, that is being arrogant. The balance is that I acknowledge the gifts God has given me, and as I use them, the glory goes to Him. He gave the gift. He empowers the using of the gifts or the privilege of the the assignment, the responsibilities. And it is true that He has enabled me to do it and I have cooperated with Him, hopefully more and more. But the, the power to do it is God's. The motivation is God's. And the gift itself is God's. So to whom does the glory belong? Sanity says all the glory goes to God. But it does not deny the gift. It does not deny the talent. It does not deny the assignment. And so, in the body, we are different. We need each other because each of us is a different part of the body. Shaul goes on to describe some of these gifts. There's prophecy, there's Ministry, there's teaching, there's exhortation, there's generosity, giving, leadership, mercy. But in another place, Shaul will say that, that whatever the gift is, it comes from God. Whatever the ministry is, it comes from God. Whatever the result is, it comes from God. And so, Peter will write to us in his first letter, As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone's gift is a speaking gift, let him speak as the oracles of God. And if anyone's gift is a serving gift, a ministry, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. And what is the result? That in all things God may be glorified through Yeshua Mashiach, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So God says, I've given you a gift. John has recognized that gift. And you and I are coming to recognize our gifts and our assignments. And whatever they are, we do them to his glory and to his honor and in his strength that he may be magnified in us. 
And that's exactly what's on John's heart. As we come back to John chapter 3, John has said, I've received this assignment from heaven. I'm not the Messiah. I have been sent before him. And for all to go to him is appropriate. In verse 29, then he, he brings about this analogy. He says that he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. John is actually happy in the decline of his ministry. That people are leaving him and following Yeshua. He's happy about that. And why is that? Because Yeshua is the heavenly bridegroom. And those whom God, God is being preparing through John, those who come to believe and trust Yeshua, to follow God, that's the bride. Yeshua's bride. So why would John, the best man, want to have the groom's bride? Utterly silly. And he doesn't. He is happy. He is rejoicing greatly that at the sound of the bridegroom's voice, the bride begins to follow the bridegroom. The friend of the bride, the best man, has prepared the way, has brought the bride to her glorious groom. And John's joy is fulfilled or complete. And then that wonderful statement in verse 30, the very heart throb of every person who truly sees Yeshua, he must increase and I must decrease. That doesn't diminish a human being. That exalts a human being because our whole purpose in life is to live for the glory of God. Our whole purpose in life is to help others see the glory of Yeshua. How precious and wonderful and valuable He is. How worthy He is of our life, of our love, of all that we have and all that we are. That He is the treasure hidden in a field. He is the pearl that is priceless. He is worth everything. And so, of course, He must increase and I must decrease. I was discussing this passage with with my wife this week. And she said, you know what, what it makes me think of? It makes me think of Yeshua's transfiguration. When Peter and James and John were there on the mountain with him. And his his face was transformed and his glory began to shine through. And he was conversing with Elijah and Moses. And, and Peter, when he, they were kind of drowsy, and when, when he wakes up, Peter says, well, well, Lord, we should build three tabernacles. One for Moses, one for Elijah, one for you. And then this cloud, the glory cloud, descends on him. And the voice of the Father says, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. And when the cloud raises, they see Yeshua only. He must increase, but I must decrease. Sooner or later, people must see Yeshua. 
Yeshua is who we point to, who we live for, who we are in a relationship with, who we love, who we are growing to be like, because the Spirit of God lives in us who have trusted Him and is transforming us from glory to glory. Again, Shaul is a, is a model for us here. In his letter to the Philippians, in chapter 1, Shaul writes about his heart's desire. We know that in Philippians, he is, is being imprisoned. And he doesn't know the outcome of what will happen to him. And yet, this is his heart. Shaul writes, verse 19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Yeshua Mashiach, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Messiah will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death, for me, to me to live is Messiah and to die is gain. Shaul had been so captivated by Yeshua that wherever he was, he wanted to fulfill the assignment of, of teaching and preaching about the grace of God in his life. And he wanted to magnify Yeshua. Now think about that for a moment. Can you and I magnify someone who's already great? In one sense, no, we can't. But what we can do is help us, one another, and others see how genuinely great he is. And that means that we are coming to know more and more deeply how great, how wonderful, how glorious Yeshua is. I've used this illustration before. I've I've heard others use this. But the the picture of magnifying is not like us taking a microscope where you look at something that you can't see and you make something really small bigger, but it's like a telescope where you see something glorious and grand and distant and you bring it closer so you can see the glory of it. So you and I, in a sense, are like telescopes that we help people see the reality of the greatness of Yeshua and that we magnify Him in our whole life and that He becomes our all in all. He must increase, I must decrease, says John. And He means it. It's not just a a platitude. This is His joy. His joy is for the exaltation of of the heavenly bridegroom. And then in in verse 31, he begins to speak about Yeshua. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is earthly and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Yeshua, from heaven, above all. Verse 32, And what he has seen and heard, that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He has seen and heard the Father. 
He has lived in intimate fellowship with the Father throughout all eternity. And Yeshua has come tabernacling among us. He is revealing the glory of the Father. He speaks accurately. He testifies accurately because He is an eyewitness of the glory of the Father. And even though most do not receive His testimony, we know there are those who do, as is evidenced in this room. Then in verse 33, He who has received his testimony is certified that God is true. God is true whether we believe him or not. But when we receive the testimony of the Son, we are affirming the truth of God. And if people do not believe what God has said about Yeshua, essentially, John will write in his first letter, they are calling God a liar. There's no middle ground. Either Yeshua is all he has said he is, we affirm that and affirm that God is true, or we say, no, he's not, and we call God a liar. There is no middle ground. But whether we call God true or a liar, the reality is God is true. And Yeshua is giving eyewitness testimony to all that he knows of the Father, because he came from heaven. And in verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God does not give the Spirit by measure. Yeshua sent from God, sent by God. Yeshua delightfully coming, choosing to come. And Yeshua being given the words of God. Yeshua said, I don't speak anything, Of myself, I speak only what I hear the Father saying. And he's been given the Spirit freely, without measure. The Spirit of God filling Yeshua always. And verse 35, a beautiful expression. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Yeshua bears witness to the love of the Father The Father and the Son have been loving each other through all eternity. And in the wisdom of God, together they planned the one true and living God in three persons planned our salvation that Yeshua would come in the flesh. And the Father had sent Him out of love and the Son has come out of love, not under coercion. It's a marvelous mystery. And the conclusion, the powerful, the awesome, the terrible conclusion in verse 36, he who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. It's all in the Son. The Son is the glorious witness of heavenly reality, of who God is and what God is really like. In another part of his gospel, John will say that if you've seen the Son, you've seen the Father. We see the glory of God in the face of Yeshua. And it's through seeing the glory of God in the face of Yeshua 
that we come to see the immense love of God, the trustworthiness of God, that in Him is life, and this life is in His Son. The offer is before us, the glorious offer of life if we trust. You and I have this glorious privilege of walking with the Father through trusting in the Son, of experiencing life, everlasting life right now, and of being displays of His glory and being ones who carry out His assignments and His purposes that He might be magnified. Today, may Yeshua be magnified in us and may others find life in Him and may we know the fullness of joy from walking with Him in the assignment that God has given us. Let's pray together. Father, help us to be faithful like John the Immerser. Help us to walk with you day by day, carrying out all the purpose that you have for our lives, using the gifts you've given us, the talents, the abilities, however great or small they may be. And let us know the joy of pointing others to the one who loves us most and knows us best, the one whom we have come to love. May Yeshua be honored and glorified and magnified in our life, in our congregation, more and more. And may we know your joy and the wonder of living life with you. In Yeshua's name, amen.